In your majesty, come down. In your mercy, Lord, come down upon us. Glory, self, in robes of grace. You are welcome in this place where the saints are gathered. of you and to everybody who's joining us on the live stream. It's good to have you with us. Uh, let's do some announcements real quick here. Uh, so first of all, uh, today we are having uh, a meeting. This was part of the meeting that we were having two weeks ago, but we put it off to save time uh, about CCLS. Um, they would like permission from us to go ahead and start beginning doing uh, legwork and uh, demographic studies and thinking about searching for uh, the guides who will be uh, leading the school. Um, and that's a decision that I, we need to make as a family. Uh, this is not set in stone today. There's uh, lots of escape hatches between now and then. But they do want our permission to begin looking for that. So uh, we're going to have that meeting uh, at 1130 today. You're more than welcome to come back. Or if you want, it'll be uh, live streamed on, YouTube, on our YouTube channel. And you'll be able to... Uh, vote via Google form again, uh, yes or no. So uh, join us at 11.30 for that. Because of that, we won't have youth confirmation today. We will have adult Bible study at 12.30. So if you want a link to that, let me know. But no youth confirmation. Adult confirmation tonight at 6 
anybody's welcome to come. Services this week. Uh, Wednesday night, there will be no, um, no Advent service Wednesday night. Thursday night, Christmas Eve, we will have a Christmas Eve service at 11.30 p.m. Uh, I will send out this week a sign-up for that to try and keep. Now, I, I don't remember having a, a whole lot of people last year, but to, in order to keep the sanctuary to around 25% capacity, I will send out a sign-up sheet to sign up for that. If we get way more than will fit in one service, like we, let, let me know if you're interested and we, will, we can discuss uh, other services. But um, that'll be for, uh, is that Thursday night? Is Christmas Eve Thursday night? Okay. Thursday night at 11.30 p.m. Christmas morning at 9 o'clock a.m. Um, also here. And um, Sunday school today, uh, the, uh, uh, Jen and Marilyn have created uh, kind of a quick do part of it here, take part of it home Sunday school for kids uh, from preschool through eighth grade. That's downstairs in between services. I know the 10, 15, the third service has more kids in it than this one does, but if you're interested, uh, that's downstairs then. Uh, let me see, I'm, I'm almost certain that I'm forgetting stuff. Uh, your offering envelopes, if you're here in person, are back on the table out there. Grab them when you leave. I think that's all I have. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This prayer of confession here, uh, some of you will find it uh, hauntingly familiar. It's pulled uh, a lot of it verbatim from Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's vision of God sitting on his throne. Holy, holy, holy you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness frightens us. It fills us with awe. It fills us with wonder. What else can we do but fall down before you and confess our woe? We are lost. We are a people of unclean lips and unclean thoughts. The light of your holiness only reveals the darkness of our sin. Holy, holy, holy you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness is white hot, converting our sin. Send your seraphim to us with burning coals from your altar, that our guilt be taken away and our sin forgiven. Holy, holy, holy you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness is frightening, all-consuming. Sanctify us to your service. Make us holy that we might be your people, that we might reflect your glory and serve you forever. In the name of Jesus we pray, whoever stands before the altar of heaven, our mediator, who presents before you your holy majesty, our prayer and supplication, now and evermore. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The psalm is from Psalm 89. It's going to mention the covenant that God made with David, that David's throne would be the eternal throne, that's going to actually come from 2 Samuel 7, which we'll read in just a second too. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. 
you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so 2 Samuel 7, this is the text that the psalmist gets that promise that God made to David uh, from this text that we're about to read now. Uh, Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Some of the last lines from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the first chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Can I give you a, a pure bonus sermon material that didn't actually fit into the sermon, but I, it's, I kind of want to say it. Uh, so some people have imagined uh, that this is some sort of like reading this text through ancient pagan lenses, that this is some sort of like description of how Mary got pregnant. The Holy Spirit came upon her as though it's some sort of like sexual experience. And, and like I said, this is a, largely a, a pagan way of seeing these sorts of things. Many people in Greek and Roman mythology, and other pagan mythologies as well, but that's, those are the ones I'm probably most familiar with. A, you know, half human, half divine, uh, came into existence because their mom and dad, so Achilles, for instance, the famous Achilles, whose father was human and whose mother was divine, he came into existence because a human and a divine being had sex and made a half-human, half-divine being. Well, there's some people who say, well, reading this through pagan lenses, that this is what happened, is that Mary was somehow um, uh, assaulted by the Holy Spirit or something like that. But actually, this language of the Holy Spirit will come upon you is never, it's, it's uh, far from being sexual it's very, very common in the Bible. It's always language of power. For instance, in Judges 14, Samson, some of you remember this from Sunday school, Samson is confronted with a lion, and the book of Judges says the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he you know, killed the lion. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, after the ascension, wait here in Jerusalem, and wait here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, and then you'll be witnesses to me in uh, uh, Jerusalem and Judea, etc. So the Holy Spirit coming on people with power is never sexual. It's always about gifting. It's always about call and vocation and purpose and uh, mainly about power. That's what's happening to Mary. This is not a description of all of the mechanics of how Mary got pregnant. The story is completely uninterested in that. Uh, we don't know. It is, a, it is a description, though, of Mary's call to a certain vocation. It's exactly the same. Now, her vocation, obviously, is quite different than any of the vocations any other human being has ever had. But it's no different. How that, how that vocation happens is no different. The Holy Spirit comes upon his church with power to serve Jesus for a specific purpose. That's what's going on here, okay? All right, that's a freebie there. Verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, so 
What I want to do today, if I can, is, of course, I'd like to talk a little bit about what this text can teach us about what it means and looks like to live the Christian life, to be Jesus' followers. In order to do that, though, we have to ask, what does this text say about Jesus uh, in, in order to understand what our relationship with, with him would be? But th- those are kind of the two things that we're going to do at the end. One thing I'd like to do first, though, if I can, is, and it's the kind of thing, honestly, I probably should do about once every six months. And I could do this, I could, I could pull this talk out of this sermon and plug it into just about any, uh, there's a, a, a score of other texts in the Bible in which it would be appropriate. But I'm going to do it here with this one because it works here. And the discussion is the probability, the possibility perhaps of miracles. And this is the kind of thing that like, uh, I just, I, some of you know I listened to, uh, I mentioned to you before, I listened to the podcast Unbelievable. And the most recent episode that, that uh, just dropped this past week was a discussion between Jonathan Pierce, who is uh, kind of, if you're interested in these sorts of topics, he's a famous atheist who wrote a book recently about the uh, pious fictions that are the birth narratives of Jesus. They're kind of made-up stories in retrospect to explain how this Christian Achilles came about. And they're not really true, but, you know, the church had to make up something. And he's talking to a, um, a woman whose name I forget now, but who's arguing that the, that the birth narratives should be taken at face value. Anyway, this is a common thing to say, well, you know, pregnant virgins, okay. You religious people, maybe that's the kind of thing that gets you going around Christmas time. But we smart people know that that's just superstitious. That's the kind of thing that the backward-minded people of the ancient world tended to believe. You could voice something like that upon those yokels. But we're beyond that. And, and of course, some of you have heard me say this before. Actually, I just said something like this in new members class last Sunday, so my apologies for repeating myself. We, of course, know the difference between a uterus and a fallopian tube, which they probably didn't, but they did know how to make babies. They weren't ignorant. They knew how babies came about. To say that a virgin was pregnant is just as dumb then as it is now. It's just as scandalous then as it is. It's just as hard to believe then as it is now. That's part of the point. Why is it, the, why is it that, that we have uh, troubles believing this? Why is it that it's not just that it's hard to believe, but it's the feeling that surrounds it of ludicrousness and uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of a, a cultural stupidity, like oh, we're the weirdos who believe that virgins can get pregnant. Well, let's, let's talk about this. Can we talk about this for a few minutes? That's the discussion I want to have first. Um, why is it that this is hard to believe. Um, maybe there's something about our culture that is short-minded, that's sort of intellectually stinted, which prevents us from thinking about these things in a clear-headed way. That's what I'm going to argue. I'm going to give you four options for thinking about a story like this uh, about the virgin birth. Four options that you have as a Christian living in this culture, or just as anybody living in this culture, actually. And the first option is philosophical materialism. This is kind of the, this is the one that would say, this is actually a dumb story. Virgins don't get pregnant. Everybody knows that. Um, philosophical materialism is the position that the material, that's why it's called materialism, the material is all there is that exists. There is nothing except for matter. That, you know, I mean, there's emotions and there's thoughts, but those can be boiled down to, and this is the way people talk, okay? Like if you talk about emotions, what are emotions? If you talk to, 
a lot of scientists, hard scientists, biologists, or social scientists, if you talk about emotions, they're ultimately in their own mind going to be thinking, okay, what are the chemicals that are flowing in this person's body that we can pin those emotions to to understand what's happening with this person? Philosophical materialism says that there is no God that exists, that all that there is is matter. Now, I don't want to ha hammer on this too much because this is one of my favorite hobby horses. If this is true, then there is no such thing as morality, right? Because matter don't care. Carbon atoms don't care what right and wrong is. It doesn't matter to them. So if you want to get something done, you can't really appeal to right or wrong. You just have to do it, right? This is what Nietzsche saw 150 years ago, is that power is the name of the game. If you want something, you have to do it. And what we call right and wrong is actually, right is people who have the most power who can make other people do what they want. Wrong is you have no power, so you have to do what everybody else tells you to do. That's what, that, that's what right and wrong is. And Phil, you know, the problems with that, of course, is that to, to live in a world without morality is horrific to most of us. To live in a world where we're just animals, and if somebody murdered somebody else, it's not necessarily wrong. It's just what happens out in the wild. Most of us are horrified by the thought of that. The reason why you're horrified by the thought of that, by the way, is that you're made in God's image. And everything about you as a person made in God's image rebels against the notion of philosophical materialism. But the trade-off, though, is if you're not going to be a philosophical materialist, if there is some sort of force in the world that stands outside and above the physical world, then stuff like the virgin birth might happen. And then you're going to be one of those idiots who has to say, I guess it could happen. And so you have to make a choice. Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be an idiot or do you want to be a materialist? Those are the two choices on offer. Now, a lot of people rebelling against the notion of a godless world because they understand the ramifications of a world with no morals would describe themselves as deist, right? A deist is somebody who believes that there is a God, unlike the philosophical materialist. This is your second option here. There is a God, but that God does not intervene in the day-to-day -day workings of human life. That God created things. Most deists would agree that there was some sort of like benevolent power behind everything that exists. But that benevolent power des designed long ago that... When a man and a woman had sex, possibly a baby could be born. That's the way mechanically it would work. And then he or she does not mess with that. That's not that, you know, he's not going to come and change the, the rules of the game. Babies are always born the same way. This is uh, uh, the, the religion of many of our founding fathers is deism. It's this sort of soft belief in a God. He doesn't really actually do anything. He's kind of there. You can, you can recognize him and praise him for the world around you. But he's not actually involved in the day-to-day. -day. Third option, and actually this is, I find that this is the one most common in our church pews. I would probably guess in our church pews too. It's a sort of a Christian deism that's a little bit more robust, and it goes like this. There is a God who exists. We agree with the deist. That God does not intervene in human affairs. We agree with the deist. Normally, this is where we separate from them. Normally, God does not intervene in human affairs. Normally, when babies get born, it's because two people had sex. And that's the way it normally works. There is a God, and if he wants to change the rules of the game for every once in a while, you know, if something special is going to happen, like if he's going to become a human, then he can do that. And I would guess that most of us are probably at that point. This is where this sort of distinction between natural and supernatural comes in. Lots of Christians are comfortable talking about 
There's natural things, like my kids were born naturally, Angela and I conceived them in the sort of way that all humans are conceived. And then there's supernatural. Jesus was born to Mary. Let me argue that that's not biblical. Although it's better, I, you know, it's, it's, it's more robust, it's closer to the story of the Bible than, of course, philosophical materialism. And it's closer than the story of deism, which says God is there, but things like virgin births don't really happen. It's not robust enough because, listen to me, the Bible insists that every single thing that happens is an act of God. Everything that God does is powerful and it's responsible for everything that you see. There is no natural versus supernatural. There is no God intervenes sometimes, but he doesn't intervene sometimes. God always intervenes. God is transcendent, this is true, but God is incredibly eminent. He's involved in every single little thing. Let me give you an illustration if I can. I'm going to read a quote from C.S. Lewis, and of course I do this every Sunday. You guys are going to like fire me and hire the ghost of C.S. Lewis at some point. This is from his really, really excellent collection of essays, which I would recommend to you called God and the Dock. Um, Doc is the English colloquial word for the stand where the defendant in an English court where he or, he, he or she sits when they're on trial. In other words, you know, this is a book about God being on trial. And there's an essay in there called Miracles, which is really fantastic. And here's what he says about this. He says it way better than I just said it. And he's talking about the miracle of uh, Jesus turning the water into wine in, in, in John chapter 5. Remember that? He says this. God, cre- God creates the vine and teaches it to draw up water by its roots, and with the aid of the sun, to turn that water into a juice, which will ferment and take on certain qualities. Now, he just described how wine is made, but he says, look, that's actually God who does that. You know, Think about this. Root goes into the ground, starts sucking up water, and it forces that water up and then out into little tiny purple or yellow bulbs, which are juicy and sweet, which when squished, and the juice extracted and allowed to ferment will turn into wine. This is actually something that God does, right? Thus, every year, from Noah's time till ours, God turns water into wine. How does wine get made? Well, you could talk to an expert like Mike Cluck. But actually, at the end of the day, wine gets made because God makes wine. He does it all the time. That men fail to see. Nobody, no, people, don't look at that. people don't look at the making of wine and think God is doing that. Either like the pagans... They refer the process to some finite spirit, like Bacchus or Dionysus, or else like the moderns, like the philosophical materialist and the deist, and the Christian deist, the moderns, they attribute real and ultimate causality to the chemical and other material phenomena, which are all that our senses can discover. Does everybody see what he's saying here? You look at it and you say, I see grapes, I see a vine, I see somebody you know, harvesting the grapes, I see machines crushing the grapes, I see vats. Well, it's uh, you know, a vintner who's making this wine. That, that's what the modernists see because that's all we can see. But actually, who causes water to go up against gravity through the vine into the grape? Who causes fermentation to happen? Who created the materials that you could use to make a vat to store wine as it's fermenting? Who did that? That's the question. So here's what Lewis says. This is what we all see, but... When Christ at Cana makes water into wine, the mask is off. And now you know. How does water get made into wine? Water always gets made into wine the exact same way. God does it. Now, he can do the long version where you plant a vine. It takes several years, right, for it to uh, become a, a grape bearing. And then you have to wait a while for it to bear good grapes. 
and then you know you crush them and the, the whole thing with the vat and everything. And that takes time. That's the long version. Or he can stand over a canister of water at a wedding in Cana and say, now you're wine. Either way, though, it's the same thing. God is turning water into wine. It's either slow or fast, but it's God who does it. The miracle of water being turned into wine has only half its effect if it only convinces us that Christ is God. If you read the story of John chapter 5 and the water being turned to wine, and it convinces you that the guy who can do this must be God, it's only had half its effect, Lewis says. It will have its full effect if whenever we see a vineyard or drink a glass of wine, we remember that here works he who sat at the wedding party in Cana. You understand what I'm saying? The miracle isn't the virgin birth. The miracle is that you and your spouse can have sex, and nine months later, there's another human being that exists. That's bizarre. Only God can do that. The miracle of the virgin birth is just a subset of that. The real miracle is that life exists. That's what the Bible is saying, that every single square inch of creation, every single second of our reality is infused with the power of God. It's controlled by him. It's sovereignly ordained by him. It comes from him. All of life is a miracle. And to disbelieve in God is to say that none of this is true. To believe in God is to say that all of it is true, and there's no middle ground. And so now we've circled back to the question of God, right? So if God doesn't exist, you're free to say, oh, virgin birth, it's nonsense. If God does exist, but he never interacts with humans, you can say, well, he's up there somewhere, but still, it's kind of nonsense. But if God does exist, then the birth of my children, the birth of your children, the birth of me, the birth of you, the birth of Jesus, all falls under the same category. There's a powerful God who exists. The hard thing to do is to believe that humans can exist. The easy next step is to believe that God can become human. Does this make sense? And the only reason why it's easy for you to believe that humans can exist is because your eyes can look around and see it. But how shallow is that? I believe in dinosaurs even though I don't see any. I believe in soda machines even though I don't see any. The hard thing is to believe that life, the miracle of life, is actually there at all. And behind the disbelief in the virgin birth is the sneaking suspicion that there's no God. Okay, so that's the virgin birth. Let me so. Uh, one more quote here. So it won't do to say, well, God can't do stuff like that. That's, this is the point that the text is driving us to. Either there's a God who can do stuff like this, or there's not a God. And it won't do, so I just saw this, uh, this uh, quote by N.T. Wright about the virgin birth where he says this, it's all very well to get on one's high metaphysical horse and insist that God cannot behave like this. Like there might be a God, but he would never do something like this. But we don't know that ahead of time. If he's God, who's to say that what he, can't, what he is or isn't going to do, right? We can't know that ahead of time. Such positions produce a cartoon picture. The mouse draws itself up to its full height, puts its paws on its hips, and gives the elephant a good dressing down. Those of us who say things like, well, I, God can't do it, find ourselves in the position of the mouse scolding the elephant. Okay, if there's a God and he exists, he could possibly do something like this. Now, the question, though, is, would he do something like this? Is this the sort of thing we should expect? Because after all, the virgin birth is only in two of the Gospels. It doesn't appear to be essential to saving faith, to, you know, to, to even know about it or to understand it, certainly. Uh, all four of um, uh, the Gospels record things like Jesus' death and his resurrection, but only two of them record his virgin birth. Now, is it a, it, why should we believe in the virgin birth? And it goes like this. Let's go to the text now. 
and look at what this text says about Jesus. This is the second part that I was telling you about. What uh, What does this story here in Luke 1 tell us about who Jesus is? Well, Gabriel comes and announces it to Mary. Verse 30, the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. More on that in a moment. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us why his name's Jesus. Matthew does. Matthew says, you know, you're going to call his name Jesus. And Jesus is uh, uh, it's the Hebrew word Joshua, and it means Yahweh will save because he's going to save his people from their sins. He will be great, uh, the angel tells Mary in verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Most High is a common Old Testament word name for God. He will be called the Son of, the high, he'll be called the son of God. And now Mary knows. Mary knows exactly what the angel's talking about. The Son of God in the Old Testament, Psalm 2, for instance, is another name for the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come and deliver Israel. And now Mary knows the angel's telling her that your son is going to be the Messiah, which is another way for saying, keep on reading here, verse 33, or verse, uh, last line of verse 32, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, which means he will sit on the, in the throne of David. What does that mean? It means that God is fulfilling his promise to David that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that David's throne would rule over Israel forever. It would be David's throne, it would be his family, and he would rule over Israel forever. But now, Gabriel ramps it up one more time for Mary because Jesus isn't going to sit on David's throne. It will be David's throne. But when Jesus sits on it, it's going to cease being David's throne and become Jesus' throne. Look at verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It doesn't say he's going to fulfill the promises made to David, and of David's kingdom, read 2 Samuel 7, there'll be no end. It says, his kingdom, there will be no end. His kingdom will never end. How is that possible? It's not possible for somebody's kingdom to not ever end. Everybody's, even Queen Elizabeth at some point, her, her uh, queendom is going to end. Uh, maybe, we'll see what happens. Uh, she doesn't appear to be any closer to death than she was in the 1950s. But Jesus, though, us, uh, you know, born, and certainly Mary at this point is probably thinking, my son's going, like, like we think when all of our babies are born. I hope they have a good life, you know. Eventually they're going to die. But this one, his kingdom will have no end. How is that possible? Well, uh, you guys know this. Mary didn't know this probably, but you know this on this side of Easter, is that he's going to be raised from the dead and never die again. He will sit on the throne forever and ever. Okay. Why am I talking about um, resurrection? Because we have to, if you're going to understand the, the, the virgin birth, you have to work backwards from the resurrection. Can I, do you think I could prove to you that the virgin birth happened? Oh, I, I couldn't, by the way. First of all, proof is a, a, a very, very slippery concept. But second of all, there's really no historical evidence for the virgin birth. There's, you know, it did or didn't happen, and all we have are the words of the people who were there. Basically, we're working off of Mary's word, Right? Now, the resurrection, though, that's a different story. There's lots of historical evidence for the resurrection, namely the fact that you and I are sitting here now, namely the fact that people who saw Jesus die, who saw him buried, insisted at the point of death that they actually saw him rise rise from the dead three days later. And they went to that with, with no sort of benefit to themselves. They made no money off of it. They made no friends off of it. They got no political power off of it. And yet they went to their deaths insisting that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. That's actually super good historical evidence. People, humans don't normally act like that in mass, insisting that something that they know is false is true. 
with no benefit to them, even if it's going to get them killed. That's really, really good evidence. Working back from that, if that's the case, if God was going to become human and die and rise from the dead to sit on the throne forever, would not we expect his entrance into the world to be something along the lines of a virgin birth? It's a completely natural birth. Mary has a completely normal pregnancy. Jesus is born with a completely normal body. He's got elbows and stomach acid and brain matter and brown hair probably. It's completely normal. But the way it, com- the way it goes about is befitting the one who is going to sit on the throne forever and ever and never die. That's not a normal thing. This is actually the kind of story that God himself would write about himself being put into the, into the middle of the story. And this is what's going on with the virgin birth. Am I proving anything to you? No, I can't prove anything. I just, nothing's provable. I can't prove to you that Caesar crossed the Rubicon. I can't even prove to you that the Allies, the Allied won World War II. There's certain things that have happened since then which bear that out, but I can't prove it to you. I'm just asking you to look at the story and see if it makes sense. Granted that philosophical materialism can't work. Granted that there is a God who does control everything. The birth of my baby, the birth of his own baby. Now, what does this have to do with me and you? And I'm almost done. Think about Mary here. Look, 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 at, look back at verse um, 28 and then 30 again. Uh, the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. Uh, uh, full of grace, the Vulgate says. Hail Mary, full of grace. Um, highly favored. It's the, the song that we just sang. Mary, highly favored one. So what the angel calls her. He does it twice, actually. In verse 30, he says it again. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Do not be afraid Mary, for you have found Literally, it's grace with God. You have found favor with God. Mary, God really likes you. God really likes you, Mary. What does it mean to be liked by God? And Think about Mary's life. Mary is highly liked by God. What did that mean for her life? See what Gabriel is asking her to do here? Mary, here's what I'm telling you. For the rest of your life, God, God likes you, Mary. Here's what this means. For the rest of your life, you will be the weirdo that everybody in your town and all the surrounding town knows is the crackpot that, th- that, that claims she was pregnant when she was a virgin. For the rest of your life, when you're in the supermarket, when you're walking along the sidewalk, people are going to pass you by and you will see out of your peripheral vision them roll their eyes. You will be smiled at to your face and ridiculed behind your back. You get a sense in the story that Mary really wants Jesus to do, like in the miracle at Cana, for instance, Mary really wants Jesus to do something big, to show these people that I'm not the the, the person that they all think that I am, that I'm telling the truth. Nobody had sex with me and I got pregnant. (laughs) That's what it means to be liked by God. I can give you examples. Within the past week, somebody has texted me and said, why does God not like me? Actually, his words, why has God left me in the lurch? What did he say? What was something along the lines of why has God, why has God set me up to fail? That's what he said. And what, he's had a, a rough go of it the past two years. What, what, what's he thinking? Now, first of all, what he's feeling is super appropriate. And the questions that he's asking, and the person that he's asking those questions to, God, is the right way to go about it. But you all, we all have this notion that God liking me means everything's going to be good. And when things aren't good, there's this sense of like, well, God, where are you at? But what does God liking Mary mean? Does it mean that her life is going to be f- no? 
We're going to read this Christmas morning or next Sunday. I can't remember. There's too many sermons going on in my head right now. The, the, in Luke where uh, Simeon says to Mary, the birth of this boy is going to be a sword piercing your heart. What, what does it mean that God likes her? You know what it means? It's a sword piercing her heart. It's rolled eyes by the people that she thought were her friends. Do you know what else it is? God lives in her belly for nine months. Forever, the Son of God will look at her and call her mother. Because this is what it is to be liked by God. It doesn't mean that anything will ever go your way. But it does mean that you will know God. He wants a relationship with you. If, if one of you came to me, quick illustration, I'll be done. If one of you came to me and said, this would be weird, don't do this, this would totally freak me out. You would say, Aaron, I, I really, really like you. And I said to you, yeah, why didn't you buy me dinner last night? You would say, maybe I don't really like him. He's this, I don't usually like the kind of people who demand money or things out of my friendship. And yet we want to insist that God liking us means he's going to do nice things for us. It's not what it is. When you say that you like me, you don't mean that you're going to buy me dinner. Maybe liking you means you're going to go through hard times and, or I'm going to go through hard times or one of us is going to go through hard times and we're going to do it together and it's going to be miserable. But you know what you mean? I want to know you. I want to hang out with you. I want to talk to you. And when God looks at you, just like with Mary, and he says, I like you, you guys, full of grace. I love you. I want to be with you. He's not saying anything more. He's not saying, I promise you, I'm going to make you always feel good. I'm going to make you always happy that you're going to be healthy and wealthy and wise. What he is saying is this. Forget all that stuff just for a minute. That will come in due time. I want a relationship with you. I want to live with you. There's only one mother of God. There's only one mother of the Son of God. But there are tons and tons of brothers and sisters of God. There are tons and tons of friends of God. And that's what he calls you, and that's what he wants to be. That's what it means to be full of grace. All right, stand with me, and let's pray, and then we'll have communion. Let's pray. God, I pray uh, this morning that you would open our eyes, that you would open my eyes. Let me pray, first of all, that you would open my eyes to the incredible and glorious miracle of my own birth and the birth of my own children and the birth of all of the people who are sitting here and listening to this right now, that every time a human baby is born, that every time our heart beats when we're not even willing it to happen or thinking about it, that every time our brain waves are firing, that you are performing the miracle of giving life just as powerful, just as vivid, no more, no, no, no less powerful, no less vivid for being a commonplace. Help us to see the birth of your son Jesus as a category of this. Help us to bow down before your throne, the throne of the God who creates and redeems and gives new life. Help us to see the fulfillment of the virgin birth, Father, and the resurrection of your son Jesus. And help us to trust you to give us this new life now through our relationship with your son Jesus on the last day to raise us up to eternal new life, also through the relationship with your resurrected son. Lord, in your mercy. God, help us to filter, to, to, God, help us to see the events of our lives through the lens of your high favor upon us. Whether it's bad stuff or good stuff, whether it's health, 
or sickness, whether it's poverty or wealth. Help us to see all these things as a subcategory of your love for us, your passion to know us, to hang out with us, to be with us. Help us to see all these things located in the brilliant and beautiful nexus of your son's birth and arrival here to be a human forevermore, to be one of us. Help us to always know, no matter what happens in our lives, help us to always know and experience this high favor that you have for us in Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you be with everybody who's uh, uh, sick and uh, struggling with health issues and struggling with loneliness and financial issues and the whole lot. Just give us comfort and hope. I pray especially this morning that you'd be with Mike, who is um, uh, heading into some uh, uh, fancy new drug trials uh, for his cancer, and just pray, God, we pray, God, that you would allow these trials to produce their desired effect, and that we would see it the same way that we see the making of wine as uh, not just chemicals working on Mike's body, but you, you doing your miraculous life-giving power. Convince Mike and all of us, though, ultimately of the infinitely healing power of the resurrection of your son Jesus and how it applies to us. Lord, in your mercy. God, we, we can only pray these things because Mary was impregnated with your son. He did become a human. He did adopt us into your family. He does call us his sisters and brothers. And he calls us your children. And so we come before you now as your children asking you all these requests. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. Now let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Christ became.